Well, good morning. My, uh, my name is Brian Berger. Uh, I uh, greet you from your sister church in Gilbert. So I'm from Redemption Gilbert. And uh, this is actually Julie and I, my wife right here in the front. We have been a part of the church there at Gilbert since 1998. Actually, she brought me over when we were in college at ASU. And uh, we were thrilled when East Valley Bible Church, our church, joined this movement called Redemption, this family of churches. But to be honest, we don't get out to many of the other churches because Sunday is a busy day for us. So we're really excited to actually be here with you. I got to meet some of your youth staff. Are there any youth staff or youth from summer camp in the house? I recognize a few faces. Uh, It's great to see you guys again. So I know some of you. Uh, A little bit about me. Uh, I was a school teacher. I, I taught and coached baseball at Tempe High School for a little bit uh, before I joined ministry. Actually, the last time I was here at Coconino High School, we were running a baseball camp and sharing the gospel with kids through baseball, uh, I don't know, maybe 13 years ago. So it's good to be back. Um, So I have two kids. I have a, a daughter who's studying biology at GCU, and I have a son who is really into film and theater, and he's in high school. And they're not with us because apparently it's better to stay home with no parents and have your friends over with no supervision than come to Flagstaff and uh, stay overnight in a cabin with no friends and just your parents. Like, I don't blame them. Um, Okay, so uh, this is a tough passage this morning. And I want to think, I want us to approach this like, we are getting to know God. And if you think of like uh, putting a piece of, uh, a puzzle piece into a big picture. Any, any of you guys puzzlers? You guys like puzzles? Especially when I get away, I think that's kind of the, most of the time I do puzzles. And there's this piece at the, at the beginning as the thing starts to take, take its shape that you look at this one piece and you're like, I don't think this belongs in this puzzle. Like the shape of it or the color, I just kind of look at the picture and I go, Based on what I see developing here in the puzzle, this thing does not seem to fit. And so we just kind of put it, you know what I'm saying? You put it over on the side, and you start collecting those pieces that really, like, you can't figure out how it works together until the picture starts to, like, continue to be shaped. And then you look at those pieces at the end, and you go, like, oh, okay, that makes sense. Yeah, that goes right there. I get it. There's a lot of times as we get to know God that we hear stories of him, and, we, and this picture of who he is develops. And we come across a passage like we have today, and for a lot of people, including myself, this has been a puzzle piece that I've just kind of put off to the side and said, I understand who Jesus is. I'm getting to understand who he is. I'm getting to understand God, but this thing just does not seem to fit. And I think, it's a, I think this passage is a struggle for a lot of people. And so what I hope to do today is to say we can't just ignore those pieces, but actually those pieces we need to put into the puzzle to get a clearer picture of who God is and therefore who we are reflecting into the world as his image bears his people. So I'm going to pray for us, and then uh, we're going to get started in First uh, Samuel 15. Let me pray. God, we are so grateful to be your kids, your children, uh, to be bought and redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior. He has died for us, and he has risen from the grave, and he has started a movement, 
a kingdom movement on earth. And Lord, we as your servants and your kids desire to know you. Lord, so we are at your feet right now ready to listen, ready to be taught, ready to be commanded into the world to share you with others, to represent you in the places where you've called us. So we pray that through this reading of your word, you would shape your church and encourage us in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so one thing you got to know if, you know, here's a puzzle piece to Brian Berger is I'm very forgetful, and I forgot my Bible in, in Gilbert. So I hope you don't mind. I don't normally preach from my phone. And I was thinking, like, this has got to be like the first time, you know, somebody preached out of a Bible, and everybody's like, where's the scroll? Why isn't he using the scroll? Why is he using a book, you know? He doesn't have a book. He's got a device, and that's a shame. But thankfully, we have it on our devices. And uh, Okay, so... In the reading, I heard this word, and this is like the, the core of this chapter. We can get sidetracked with a lot of difficulty, but the core lesson that we are to learn today is this word called Shema. Everybody say Shema. That's me being a teacher. I want to make sure that you guys stay engaged. All right. Shema is this Hebrew word, and I'm probably not saying it as Hebrew as I could, but this word means to listen. So it's like when you tell your kids, or when I was a baseball coach and I said, hey, listen up, eyes on me. I used to say, take a knee, baseball eyes on me. And my son, being the clown, would take a knee. You know, everybody's like taking a knee, looking at coach, ready to listen. And my son would grab baseballs, and he'd take a knee, and he'd be like, baseball eyes on me. I was like, all right, but Shema is the like, hey, Shema, listen, take a knee, and I want your baseball eyes on me. Like, be attentive to what I'm going to say. But Shema is, is more than that. Imagine your kids are playing. I give them the instruction on how we're going to play this game, what we're going to do today, and then they go out, and you got this kid on the team that won't listen to any, won't obey anything that you just said. And you look at the person, the assistant coach, and I would say, like, that kid don't listen. Right? What am I saying? Am I saying that he did not hear me? Or I'm saying he won't listen and obey. That's what Shema is. To listen, but also to obey. Now, this word Shema is used 1,159 times throughout the Old and New Testament. My old pastor's name was Tom Schrader. He used to say, respect the ratio. And what that meant was, if the Bible says this word that many times, you need to respect and not take these other words and elevate them like they're the most important things. Like, you need to respect the ratio. This is really important to God. And I would say this, this is really important for us because we were created for Shema. We were created in the beginning, before sin ever entered into humanity, we were called to be image bearers. Now, if we go back to Genesis 1 and 2, what we have in the scene is God made a world, and then he set his image. How is God going to deal with the world? He's going to deal with it through his image. And thank God, he put humans in charge and then would instruct them. So what we have at the beginning is God made the world. He made humans to be in charge of it. And then 
he gave them instructions. Who's the one giving instructions in Genesis 1 and 2? But God, he's defining how the world is and how human beings should subdue and care for the earth and go multiply, fill the earth. And God is giving the instructions. Don't eat from that, the, from that tree. Eat from these trees. God is giving instruction. You, me, as image bearers, we were created to take a knee and to shema, to listen and obey. Now, I have a prop. Again, I am a school teacher, and actually I teach Next Generation at uh, Redemption Gilbert, so props are really important. And you might think, oh, this is so elementary. I know, it is, totally. But uh, I think it's going to work, I think. All right. All right, so the house, some people gave us from Gilbert, they gave us kind of their, their Flagstaff house for, the, for a couple days to stay up there, and I was looking for a statue. I'm like, they got to have a little statue around here somewhere. And so on the mantle, I found this little statue of a, an angel. The significance of it being an angel is not important for the lesson, okay? I'm going to explain to you how the Israelites would have heard the word image and how ancient, the ancient world would hear what it means to be an image. Um, Israel came from slavery in Egypt, correct? Correct. Okay, so in Egypt, there was a king named Pharaoh. And did you know that Pharaoh was the image of God? They would have grown up in Egyptian worldview where there's more, there's multi multiple gods, there's a multitude of gods. In, in, that they worshipped in uh, Egypt, and each one of them had a, an image, okay? Some of them were paintings, and you would see paintings of like hieroglyphics that would describe that God, and there was like an image that when I saw that image, I would worship that image, okay, that little picture. And through that worship, uh-oh, angel down, through that worship, my blessing towards that image would translate into a blessing towards that God because there's no way that I could come into the presence of God and bless him. So I needed to bless an image. That's the way images worked. Now, all of these were paintings and sculptures of these gods that we could take one of these little sculptures and we could bring it into our house. And the way that we would worship God as a family is we would worship and bless this little statue made by hands. And God, the God that we're worshiping, is receiving our blessing through this image. In the same way that when God chose to bless us, he would bless us through this image. So the image of this God became really important. Now, Israel was brought out of that worldview. They had been 400 years shaped into believing that this is how the world worked and when they got word from Mount Sinai, Moses comes down and he's got Genesis account of creation. He says, here's our creation narrative. We're made in the image of God. What does that mean? That means instead of a carved image made by human hands, that the God of the universe is choosing the creator of all things to interact with the world through human beings. His blessing is going to come through us. His rule is to come through us. Now, this is really important for this passage because there's a movement in being an image bearer as supposed to in the Genesis account is imagine if God is here is that I'm at the feet of God 
and I shema, I learn from him. I'm at the feet of Jesus. Tell me what to do. You are God. I'm receiving your instruction. And then the next movement is, and now I represent him in the world faithfully. Many times we try and represent God without ever listening and obeying, without ever shamaying. I don't think that's a word. I just made up a word, shamaying. Start using it. All right. So let's start the passage here in uh, 1 Samuel 15. Here's what it says. Samuel said to Saul, Samuel's the prophet, he speaks for the Lord, I'm the one that the Lord sent to anoint you, king over the people of Israel. So Shema now to the message of the Lord. He's saying, take a knee, baseball eyes on me. I've got something from the Lord right now. And what is that message? Let's look at verse 2. He says, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came from Egypt. Who are the Amalekites? The message, as King Saul takes a knee and is hearing from the prophet, listen and obey, Shema, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to punish those Amalekites for what they did to you when I brought you out of Egypt. When you were weak and vulnerable, the Amalekites picked off or waylaid the stragglers. If you were falling behind of this huge entourage of God's people into the wilderness, the Amalekites were constantly in the background picking off God's people, women, children, possessions. And God said, today is the day. I'm going to punish the Amalekites. Now, if, in order to get the context here, this, this would be like um, Jews receiving the word that a prophet came to the Jews in World War II and said, I am going to punish the Nazis. That's good news. This is who the Amalekites were. King Agag was the Hitler. And they were constantly throughout the biblical narrative, the enemies of the Jews. If we were... If we were Ukrainians, we would receive the word that God, today is the day, he is going to punish their enemy, Russia. This is the kind of feeling that we would have had at this moment. And King Saul says, I'm on a knee, I'm ready, Shema, he's going to punish our enemies. How am I feeling? Great. It's about time. But this is why I think the puzzle piece doesn't really fit for me easily. Because when I look at Jesus and I see this more of a, you know, I lean of more of a pacifist, and that probably bothers some of you. Others of you, maybe that encourages. But I think all of us believe in the turn the other cheek of Scripture. Somebody slaps you on this cheek, turn the other cheek, and don't take vengeance on others. Don't pay back with evil, but instead return evil with good. If a soldier, if your oppressor asks you to take their equipment a mile, go a second mile. I think God is at war in the New Testament against evil with love. So I get that picture of the puzzle piece of Jesus, and then I see God say, go to war. It doesn't fit easily. But I think if we zoom out into the biblical narrative and the big story, I think we're going to see that this puzzle piece fits more easily. God is committed, get this, God is committed to a heaven-on-earth mission. 
God is committed to a heaven-on-earth mission. Genesis 1 and 2, when human beings were listening and obeying, can you imagine the world that existed when everything humans put their hands to is informed with the wisdom, the righteousness, the creativity, the goodness of God in our handiwork, from our relationships and our marriages and our parenting to engineering and developing but they didn't need medical devices back then, but de developing, I don't know, cell phones and airplanes and houses and agriculture, everything we put our hands to had the fingerprint of God's wisdom and righteousness on it. That's a heaven-on-earth scenario. God walking with us, teaching us, and us reflecting Him into the world perfectly. And the word that Shema brings when we listen obey is a word called shalom. Everybody say shalom. Shalom is a way that Jews greet one another. It means the peace of God, the harmony of God. And when the world is as God wants it, shalom. Harmony. It's heaven on earth. We pray your kingdom come on earth, don't we? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God is committed to a heaven on earth mission. And the way that we bring it as image bearers is Shema, listen and obey. Now, sin is the anti-Shema. Sin in all of us makes us resist God's voice to listen to other voices, to listen to the voice of the world and to represent our idols, other ideologies. Many of the world is listening to political ideologies and Shema at the feet of their political figureheads. And when you hear them speak, you go, oh, I know who you listen to. Because you're an image bearer of that person. Like you're sitting at the feet, listening, and then you speak. And sometimes we in the church even, right? We can sound more like them than we do God, than we do Christ. Sin is the anti-Shema. Now, what is God going to do? Because he's committed to a heaven on earth, shalom. But sin has interrupted all of that. You know how refinement works? When you heat something up and the impurities come to the top, right? This is how you get pure gold. Crank up the heat. All the impurities come up and then you kind of sludge it off. And what you're left with is purity. In Malachi 3.23, God says this about Israel. They've welcomed other gods and other images of God into the nation. And what God is going to do is he's going to heat up the fire. He's going to bring a judgment. And all the impurities are going to come out. And he's going to get rid of that evil so that he has a pure Israel. Another way of looking at it is what is God going to do He's the chemotherapy to the disease of sin in the world. He's coming after it. Why? Because he's committed to a shalom on earth as it is in heaven. And we see this all throughout the biblical narrative. From the very beginning, the, the, the flood. What do we see in the flood? All of mankind is doing evil all the time. They're inventing new ways of being evil, and they do whatever is right in their own mind. Whatever they think is right, they do. There's no order there's no shalom, there's no harmony, and God says, I'm going to wipe them out. He's grieving over humanity. 
The word is, this word means sigh. Sometimes it's translated regret, but it means, that's what it means. It's a sorrowful sigh. And he wipes out evil off the face of the earth, but God will always send a boat. By faith, all you have to do is listen to Noah. Get on the boat and you'll be saved. God is sending a boat of salvation and he's done it in the flood. In Sodom and Gomorrah, God punishes them and wipes them out because of their evil. But he sends the angels at the plea of Abram to go in and to find righteous people that would turn to God. Is there people worth saving? There's a boat that's sent into the city and nobody jumps on it. In the return of Christ, God is going to destroy all evil and all sin, but he's created and sent a boat, Jesus Christ. And by faith, we jump on the boat and we are saved from the flood of his wrath and his refinement of creation. We escape judgment because we have, by faith, jumped on the boat. And you see this in Jesus' teachings, the wheat and the weeds. The angels are going to come and harvest. They're going to pull the weeds out, and they're going to get rid of them, refinement. And what remains is the wheat, the good stuff. The goats and the sheep, right? The branches that don't bear fruit and the fruitful branches. This is how God refines his creation. God always offers a boat of salvation. And at this point in the story, in the biblical story, where we enter 1 Samuel, do you know who the boat is? The boat is Israel. To all the nations, they were promised, I'm going to bless you, Israel, and you're going to be a blessing to the nations, that the, that the nations might stream like a river uphill to Mount Zion and be a part of this God thing. And the Amalekites are destroying the boat. Okay? Imagine in the flood, God sent Noah's boat to save the world, and you got people just axing away at this boat. God would say, no, this is what's happening. The Amalekites are trying to stand in the way of the mission of the heaven on earth mission that God has committed to, and God says, no, your time is up. You're done. He will not let the Amalekites destroy the boat. So more context, if we read Genesis 12, we know that the covenant that God made with Israel is, I will bless those that bless you, and I will curse those that curse you. This is, again, image language. Who is the image of God now on earth? He set Israel in between God and the nations, that Israel would learn his ways and go represent him on earth. This is Israel. And as people blessed Israel, God would receive that blessing and he would bless them in return. And as people, nations, would curse Israel, they would be cursing God. And God in return would curse them. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. So I would actually have a harder time with a puzzle piece where God does not go to war against the Amalekites, because they have been a curse to Israel, and now today is the day that they're going to be punished. Now, this next part is where people really get tripped up. He says in verse 3, go attack the Amalekites, totally destroy them and all that belongs to them. This is totally opposite of how warfare worked. We typically would go to war and we would bring back the plunder. 
We would bring back slaves. We would bring back their king as a trophy. Look who we conquered. It would be a way that they could like throw things. I don't know if they threw tomatoes back then, but like our cartoons, you throw tomatoes and you like, you boo their king. We brought him back alive as a trophy of our dominance over them. We bring their riches, the best of what they have. This is what, and God said through Samuel, I don't want you to do any of that. I want you to destroy everything, put it to death. And then he has this phrase, men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys, all of it. Men and women, children, babies, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. I look at this piece of puzzle Lord, the flood is one thing. It's you doing it. But now we have, you're calling human beings to go in and to do this. And the picture of this is too gory for me. It doesn't make sense. I want to put it over here. It's not like the flood. Human beings are yielding the sword that belongs to God. I think Romans 13, 4, God resolves a little bit of this for us. In Romans 13, it's the submit to the government, right? Submit to the government. And he says, for the government is a gift of God. And now he's talking about the Roman government, not good dudes. But government on earth is given as a grace gift to human beings to punish what is evil and to reward what is good. So he says, in Rome, I want you to obey the government because they won't punish you for doing good. So in Romans 13, we have God saying, I have given the sword of judgment over to human beings in the form of government to kill, even though us as individuals are called to not murder. In the hands of the government, there is this yielding the sword of judgment and justice. Taking that upon myself is not biblical. And so what we have is Israel yielding the sword of justice for God in this moment. Okay. Some context that might help us a little bit. Commentators say this phrase of men and women, children and infants, what is it, camels and donkeys, uh, cattle and donkeys, that's a phrase used that kind of packages a way of saying everything that's living. Okay. So I think as original like readers of the text, we would not have thought God is specifically wanting them to go in and to kill the babies. But he's saying this is the word that ancient writers in other manuscripts and other histories have said everything, kill everything. The second thing is we have to know in ancient warfare, civilians are not involved. They go out like the soldiers go out to war. They fight on the field, and then they come into the villages and declare who won. That's actually the word we get, euangelion, which is gospel, is God went out to war. Jesus went out to war, and he came back and pronounced, I won. This is how warfare worked. So it was the place that actually God sends Israel or Saul into attack is not in a village like we think. It's a military outpost. In fact, the word that he uses, 
that's translated city is this word ear. It's U-R in Hebrew, ear. And that word does not mean village where civilians live. It means military outpost. Where God is sending Saul is into the military outpost. It's more like he's sending him to the Pentagon of the Malachites, less than, you know, Flagstaff. So if we read this as ancient readers would have read it, we would have heard him say, when you go to the military outpost, and when you kill everything, don't leave anything alive. Okay, so so far we've got God's on a heaven on earth mission, image bearers as we shema, we bring shalom, as they listen and obey. And we got number two, God is serious about destroying sin. And he will not be stopped. All right, the rest of the story. Verse 4, Saul gathers his army and they go. 210,000 people go to attack. They went to the city, the post, and they're ready for an ambush. They find the Kenites there. They have kind of the Kenites have intermingled with the Amalekites. And they said, Kenites, get out of here. God's about to judge the Amalekites. Now, when we came out of Egypt, the Kenites, you guys were kind to us. So the Lord... Since you were kind to us, is now going to be kind to you, you get out of here. Since they cursed us, God is bringing judgment. He sends the Kenites, uh, and then in verse 7, they attack. Everything is going as planned. Saul has listened to the command, and he's carrying it out with precision. He's doing it until verse 8. Verse 8 says this, But Saul and the army spared Agag. And the best of the sheep and cattle, and fat calves and lambs, everything that was good, they were, verse 9, no, this is verse 8, they were unwilling to destroy completely. But everything that was despised and weak, they totally destroyed. Do you see what they did? God's people did not obey. They acted like the other nations. They saved the king. What did God say? Kill everything. Totally destroy. They said, we are unwilling to destroy everything. We're going to take the best sheep. This is going to make great food. We are going to take the best donkeys. This is like the BMWs. This is, their, this is what they traveled on. These camels, man, you can't get a camel like this anymore. You know, they, they, they spared the king as the trophy. Agag gets to live, and they get to go like, we destroyed the Amalekites, the nation does not want to be holy and set apart from the other nations. They want to be like the other nations. They're acting just like the other nations. They spared the best, unwilling to destroy. Now, we could judge them right now. Come on, guys. Shema. Bring shalom. You're the image of God. And yet, this is where we got to pause and say, do we see ourselves in this narrative? Are there places where we are unwilling? Are there places we, we have partial obedience? I like those commands. I'll do that. But love my enemies fully? Lay my life down for my enemies? This boss that is kind of this oppressive force in my life, you want me to go the extra mile for him or for her? You want me to forgive that person? I'll do this, I'll give money to the church, I'll give generously to others, but I'm not going to forgive my enemies. 
certainly aren't going to love them. You mean to put off gossip after what she did? You mean to put off slander and malice and hatred and bitterness? I'm unwilling to do that. Maybe you don't have like something in you that says I'm unwilling to do that, but let's be honest. There's a whole slew of commands that God has said, Shema, listen. This is how we bring the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. You obey the king, Jesus. Here's what he said. And you go, I like those things. I'm unwilling to go there with that. Husbands, love your wife and lay your life down for her. Wives, respect and honor your husbands. Children, obey your parents. This pleases the Lord. Submit to government. Pay taxes. Speak the truth in love. We can judge Israel. We do the same thing. Israel is the boat of salvation, and it's sinking because of their disobedience. And I would say, as we look at the church in America, we got some holes in the boat. Beautiful thing is, this is a moment of repentance for us. For the rest of our time, I'm going to dissect the story and, and just kind of talk about the anatomy of sin in Saul and then God's response. So I'm going to fly through some lessons that we learn here in the rest of this, this story. Okay, why did they disobey is, is key for us. It's a mirror for us to say, why do I disobey? I love Jesus. I believe he's the king of kings. I believe that if I listen to him, I will bring a shalom on earth as it is in heaven. I believe that, and yet I find myself disobeying. Why? Number one, rationalism. Can you imagine? They got the BMW camel, and they're putting it to death going like, man, it would be really good for us if we had camels like this in our nation. Let's just spare this one and let's take it. All these different decisions, the, the soldiers are saying like, I, we cannot, this is good food. These sheep are healthy. This is good food for us. This is going to feed our army. Let's get rid of the diseased ones and the marked ones. We'll save the ones that we can sacrifice. We'll save the ones that we can eat. There's a rationalism instead of Shema that we can ourselves start to ra ra rationalize why it would be better for me to disobey God than to obey God. Number one, rationalism becomes how, who we go to to listen to. It becomes our God. Number two, we see that they compare themselves to other nations. How many of you guys are parents here? How many parents in the room? All right, how many times have you heard this? But Billy's mom said that, or all the other kids in school have the phone. Or no, mom, you don't understand. Everybody does this. There is a natural tendency in our sin to go, everybody's doing it. Billy's mom says this. Billy can do it. They can do it. Everyone at school has this. Therefore, I should be able to do this. Israel is saying, these nations do it. That's how they get rich. They plunder and take the wealth. Why can't we do it? What we have to understand, people of God, is that we've been, whole, we've been sanctified. We've been set apart different than the other nations. Holy. That we don't look to our neighbors to say, how do we live? We look to our Creator, Baseball eyes on him. Shema at his feet. 
not at the nations and the people and your neighbors. Sin gets us into trouble. We fall into sin when we compare to others and we take our cues from them. Disobedience, you have to understand, number three, leads to personal gain. Your disobedience will lead to personal gain. Israel just got food, lust of the flesh. They just got all these possessions, lust of the eyes. And they just got this trophy of dominance over their enemies, Amalekites and King Agag, pride of life. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. This is the pattern of the world. And it benefits you temporarily in personal gain as you disobey God. And in many times, as I obey God, I don't get the possessions. I actually lose status. Disobedience learns, or will get us personal gain, but disobedience will not bring ever heaven on earth. Shalom. Harmony. Well, what happens if we gain the world, but we lose our soul? What happens if I gain all those possessions, but the inside of me is in such disorder? My family is in disorder. My community is in disorder. We have to understand that disobedience leads to my personal gain, but disobedience will not lead to shalom. And so what do you want more? Do you want personal gain? Or do you want shalom on earth as it is in heaven? Many times I choose the personal gain. Number five, as we dissect Saul's sin, we see this. He has unplugged from the fear of God. This is from my pastor, Tom Schrader. We've unplugged from the fear of God. Saul is not afraid of disappointing God. And actually, it says, when he's confronted by Samuel in verse 24, he says, I was afraid of the soldiers because they wanted to keep this stuff. Saul, as their leader, unplugged from the fear of God, obeying him, and he's plugged into the fear of man. He's afraid that he's going to lose the troops. If he tells them they got to kill everything, but you know what would really make them love me as king? Is if I said, go ahead, boys, take the best, and we're going to get out of here. And they're like, yes, look at all this stuff we get. When we unplug from the fear of God, you will plug into something else. You will plug into the fear of man. And when you plug into the fear of man, now my obedience becomes, I need to please them. And I need to avoid their rejection. And because Saul has done this, we're going to see in this text that God has rejected him. Number six, partial obedience is satanic. It's funny, when Samuel comes to Saul, Saul says, the Lord bless you, Samuel. He's so proud of himself. Do you know what he's doing at that moment? He's building an altar to honor himself. He really thinks he obeyed God. And Samuel's come to rip the kingdom from him. And he's so proud of himself because he obeyed partially. And what, what Samuel says is, your partial obedience is like the sin of divination. 
That's like witchcraft. Saul, because you did not shema, <coughs> it's like witchcraft and idolatry. Partial obedience is satanic. We even go back to the garden and say there was partial obedience involved in the garden. And yet without complete obedience, there's a banishment, there's a punishment. Number seven, we tend to blame others. Well, if my wife didn't say that or if she didn't do that, then I wouldn't have done this. Or if my kids would just obey, then I wouldn't have to be a jerk. Or if he would just listen to me, I wouldn't need to manipulate. Or if the government would just stop taking all my taxes, I wouldn't have to cheat on my taxes. Sin justifies and blames others. In this moment, Saul tries to blame the soldiers. It's them. They wanted to do this. In the garden, Adam said, it's the woman that you gave me. The anatomy of sin is we're going to protect ourselves from judgment by trying to excuse that it's the other person's fault. Church, all of these, all of this dissection and anatomy of sin is for us to go, I understand that's in me. Lord, lead me not into the temptation to do the same thing. We cannot excuse our gossip because of what they do. You cannot excuse your snarky comment on social media because they disagree with you or they're morons. You go, oh, I wouldn't have to, like, make a scene on social media if they weren't saying such insane stuff. No, their disobedience does not excuse our lack of Shema. Eight and nine is kind of the same. Sin can masquerade as religion. You know what Saul says to Samuel? Well, I stole all this stuff so that I can sacrifice it to God. He says, doesn't God want Shema? Doesn't he want you to listen and obey more than he wants your sacrifices? We parade, we masquerade our disobedience a lot of times as doing this for God. And sin hides behind worship. This is Jesus confronts in Matthew 23, 23. He says to the, the Pharisees, woe to you. You tithe and you do all this stuff. You sing songs, but you reject justice and mercy and these other things in the law. You're hiding behind your worship services while you disobey God in the background. What's God's response to all of this? Number one, he's upset. I said the word is sigh. It's sorrow. Our sin, even today, New Testament church, grieves the Holy Spirit of Christ. I was at a, I was at a, a club the other day with some youth, and they said, I'm just so glad that no matter what I do, I can't make God any more happy, and I can't make God any more sad. He loves me just the way I am. They kind of looked at the other pastor in the room like, is anyone going to say anything? <laughs> We've confused that our sonship, our sonship as daughters and sons, means that God never grieves our sin. That's not a part of the puzzle piece. God always grieves sin. When my son Tyler sins and disobeys me, I'm not happy like, I didn't see it. I'm still happy, even though you ignore what I say. 
Tyler is my son no matter what. You, if you've put your faith in Jesus, you're his son or daughter no matter what. He sealed you with his Holy Spirit. You're his. And yet when you disobey, it grieves God. (sighs) It's a sigh of sorrow. No less a child of God. But we're instructed, New Testament believers, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Do not make God sad with your sin. Number two, what what else? God is upset. The second thing is God sends a Samuel. Listen, God loves you. And when when you sin, he will send a Samuel. Samuel at this moment is pronouncing God has rejected you. But before this moment, God is sending Samuel to instruct repentance and obedience. When someone comes to confront you in your sin, what is our response typically? Can't believe you're judging me like that. Who are you? I've seen the way that you live. And we're casting stones and we're throwing up defenses. Who is he to say that to me? There is this like defense mechanism in our heart of when a Samuel comes to us to confront us in our sin, our first flinch is boom, no, don't go there. You have no right. You're right. They're a sinner too, but guess what? That's all God has to work with. He can't save a righteous, I mean, he can't send a righteous person to you, right? He's sending someone from his church to come and confront you on your sin. Don't reject Samuel. God's grieved and he sends a prophetic word to you to turn. Number three, he rejects Saul as king. This is the story. He says, Saul, no more you. I'm going to move on to David. Saul, you didn't kill King Agag. Samuel kills King Agag. Here's the point. God's committed to his mission whether you obey or not. He's going to accomplish shalom on earth, on earth as it is in heaven. Whether you're his instrument or not. And Lord, save us from being the church that God says, you don't shema, I'm going to use the church down the road. I'm moving on from this. That doesn't mean I'm, I'm talking about losing your salvation. I'm saying, like, are we going to be the people on the boat that are calling the world to be saved? Or is God saying... You don't obey. I'm going to find someone else to be the loudspeaker to bring them on the boat. God's committed to his heaven on earth mission. God moves on from Saul, and we're going to see that there is a new king coming. Now, here, here's we're finishing. This story leads us to long for a king. When will God finally send a righteous king? to lead his people in righteousness, he has in Christ. The story leads us to ask, when will God finally deal with our hard hearts, our unwillingness to obey, he has in Christ and sending his spirit? When will God finally send the perfect image to bring heaven on earth, he has in Christ? The perfect representation of God on earth. When will God finally send his perfect boat to save the world from the refining fire that's coming, the flood? 
he has in Christ. This is a Samuel moment for the church. We need to repent of our unwillingness and our partial obedience. Two ways we participate in this mission. One, we pray as a church, your kingdom come in my life as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And number two, we shema. Sit at the feet of Christ and we go wash the feet of the world. We come back and we sit at the feet of Christ and we learn and we go out and we serve at the feet of our neighbor. And this movement is what we're called to. So now I'm going to introduce a time of reflection after I pray and we're going to sit at the feet of Christ. We're going to give some space for us to listen to Shema and to hear what the Lord has to say. Maybe you want to write down some notes on your app or a device, or maybe you have a handwritten notes. What is the Lord saying to us now? Let me pray for us. We'll go into a time of reflection. Lord, you are good, and thank God we cannot stop your heaven-on-earth mission. And thank God you've chosen to use us to call people to join you on the boat of salvation to save ourselves from your refining fire. And thank God, that you sent Jesus to refine and get rid of all sin and evil and disobedience and to deal with it. Lord, you've done it on the cross, and now as your faithful servants, Lord, give us ears to hear your voice and give us the Spirit that empowers us to bear the fruit of Christ in the world as we wash the feet of our neighbors. Open up our ears and hearts now to hear your word as we reflect. Lord, what do you want to teach us? In Christ's name we pray. Amen.